You're listening to ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Man cannot help but interact with his biological environment as a member of his own ecosystem and not always with a result that's positive for his species. But it is always in a manner that continues to shape the world of the smallest creatures, the world of infectious diseases. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Bennett Lorber from Temple University. Dr. Lorber is a Thomas M. Durant Professor of Medicine and a Professor of Microbiology and Immunology in the Department of Infectious Disease. Today we are discussing the impact of societal changes on infectious diseases. Dr. Lorber, I know you've been looking into this theory for a long time, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today and share your thoughts. Happy to be here. Tell me, what prompted you to get into this area, or how were you first in your many years in infectious disease gaining awareness of the societal impact of infectious disease? My interest in this area really started outside of infectious diseases during the time that I was a resident in internal medicine and had responsibilities working in an emergency room. And it was a routine matter in those days to see children who had crush injuries of their uh, hands and forearms having been caught in the ringers of the family washing machine. And then some years later, I realized that I hadn't seen one of those injuries in many years, obviously because that type of washing machine has largely disappeared from the uh, landscape of American life. And when I got into my career in infectious diseases, I started to think about how changes in society could impact and change patterns of infectious diseases in the same way. So this has been a long interest of mine. What are some of the earliest examples that you can think of that have changed over time? Well, I think one of the sort of most striking is the recognition of this entity, which doctors call Pseudomonas folliculitis, which is more graphically referred to by uh, people who have it sometimes as hot tub buns. And this is an entity that you see in individuals who spend some time in hot tubs and are wearing bathing suits and don't take off the wet bathing suits. And the pseudomonads, which uh, thrive in hot tubs, the uh, pseudomonas bacteria, invade into the skin and cause these uh, itchy rashes that are particularly in areas covered by the bathing suits, uh, hence the name hot tub buns. And hot tubs were very rare in the United States prior to about the 1970s, and then there was an uh, immense explosion, and uh, many people have them in their homes now. It was an extraordinary growth industry, and with the development of hot tubs as a way of spending leisure time came this interesting dermatologic problem. You know, speaking of leisure time, one of the big increases over the 20th century in leisure time and how you spend it, of course, has been travel. Would you comment on some examples of how our ability to travel has had an impact? Certainly. You know, every day, about 2 million people get in a plane in one country and uh, wind up in another country. And each year, 15 or 20 million Americans go to tropical parts of the world, for example, where they can come in contact with uh, illnesses that uh, were never seen in the United States and returned to the United States while the disease is still incubating. So there's been a steady increase in malaria, for example, in the American civilian population as more and more people are traveling to malarious parts of the world. At the same time, 
the changes in climate can have impacts. So, for example, global warming is uh, shortening the life cycle of mosquitoes. So the mosquitoes breed faster than they used to with slight changes in ambient temperature. And many of the largest and most rapidly developing cities in the world now are in places where malaria is endemic. So we're seeing people with malaria, with African trypanosomiasis, with South American trypanosomiasis, with leishmaniasis, and many other at one time exotic diseases that are now presenting to American physicians in travelers. Is this impacting our ability to treat, say, malaria, or is it still sensitive? I think it's still pretty easy to treat malaria, although the number of malaria cases that can be treated with the treatments that were prevalent 20 years ago have greatly diminished. But it's still pretty easy to treat malaria. The problem is that many American physicians aren't familiar with malaria, and studies have shown, for example, in major metropolitan areas in the United States, that when returning travelers go to a physician or an emergency room with malaria, 80% of the time, the initial physician who sees that patient does not even consider the possibility of malaria. So just a reminder, one of the things that we all learned in medical school is to take an appropriate travel history. What about food and water safety? Yeah, this is a tremendous issue for the general public health. We all want safe food and water, and everybody who watches television or reads the newspaper knows about some of the problems that we've seen in recent years with national outbreaks of E. coli infection recently related to contaminated spinach, a couple of national outbreaks of an unusual parasitic infection of the intestine, cyclospora, that came from eating imported raspberries, and many other examples. And the problem is that when we got our food from the garden or when we got our food from the farm down the road, there were foodborne illnesses. When we got our water from the well, there were waterborne illnesses. But the number of people who were made sick by contaminated food or water was, was small. Now much of our food comes from uh, gigantic food processing plants where immense amounts of food are distributed on a daily basis all across the country. So we've had you know, national outbreaks of listeriosis, for example, related to contaminated hot dogs an outbreak just a few years ago in which these hot dogs were all processed in one plant but were distributed all over the country, and there were cases in 22 separate states, and about 20% of the affected individuals died. So this can be a serious problem. And about 15 years ago in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the city water supply was contaminated with the waterborne protozoan parasite Cryptosporidium, and 400,000 people became ill with a gastrointestinal illness. So it's imperative that we do everything we can to ensure safe water and food. That's an amazing number of patients that were affected by that. But you also told me a great story about the rise and fall of gefilte fish and roundworms. Yes, there's an interesting entity in which uh, humans can become infected with roundworm larvae these roundworms are referred to as anisacid worms, and the adult worms are parasites of marine mammals like seals and sea lions. And the larvae parasitize the intestinal tract of fish. And if you 
catch a fish and clean it quickly, the larvae are eliminated. But in the fish industry today, fish are caught at sea, and they're not processed on the ships the way they used to be. And sometimes between the catch and the processing in the plant on shore, the larvae in the intestine sort of realize that something's wrong, and they burrow out of the intestine and embed themselves in the musculature of the fish. And then if an individual eats raw fish containing these larvae, they can ingest the larvae. It's not a very common event, and when it happens, most of the time you don't even know it happened and there's no consequence. But occasionally, these larvae can cause symptoms that mimic peptic ulcer disease, or worse, sometimes in humans, they burrow out of the human intestinal tract, perforating the intestine and causing peritonitis. And for years in this country, this entity was seen almost exclusively in Jewish housewives who got this problem while they were preparing gefilte fish and, and tasting the fish as they were preparing it, the raw fish. But very few people make gefilte fish anymore. And with the popularity of sushi, the demographic of this infestation has changed. So this anisakid problem is now seen almost exclusively in people who eat sushi. It's a very interesting change of events, I think. And you were telling me something about the number of sushi restaurants or Japanese restaurants over time. When I graduated from medical school in 1968, there was a single Japanese restaurant in the entire city of Philadelphia. And now anybody who lives in any, any major metropolitan area in, in this country knows that as you walk down the streets of the city, you pass numerous sushi bars. The eating of raw fish delicacies uh, has become very popular in this country. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and we are speaking today with Dr. Bennett Lorber, and we're discussing the societal impact on infectious disease. We talked about pets. How has our relationship with our pets had an impact? Pets generally are good. There are interesting studies showing that children, for example, in contact with pets are calmer, perform better in a variety of testing situations. There are studies that suggest that individuals who've had a myocardial infarction live longer following the myocardial infarction if they have a home pet. There are studies showing that if you're in contact with your pet dog, your blood pressure drops. Pets provide a lot of pleasure and may actually be good for our health, but there's a downside to pets. And one of the things that's happened in this country is that more and more Americans are sharing their homes with exotic animals, such as iguanas and ferrets and snakes and unusual rodents imported from Africa. And in 2003 in this country, we had an outbreak of monkeypox in the Midwest of this country, and that was the first appearance in the Western Hemisphere of this viral disease that causes fever and a, a blister-forming rash. And about 72 people became ill after contact with pet prairie dogs, but the prairie dogs got infected because they had been housed with rodents that had been imported from Africa, and the rodents were thought to be the primary source of the disease. Another area is that women, as mothers, aren't staying home much anymore for socioeconomic reasons, but more children are going into daycare, and that has an impact on viruses that are emerging? Yeah, viruses and bacteria and protozoan parasites. There are now more than about 15 million children in daycare, and daycare has been a tremendous boon. It's enabled parents to go to work without being anxiety-ridden about what's happening with their children while they're out of the house. And as you point out, 
Many people need to work and can't stay home with their children. But daycare centers are potentially hotbeds for disease transmission. So there have been outbreaks in daycare centers of many viral infections, mild ones like common colds, bacterial infections, including all kinds of bacterial diarrheal pathogens, salmonella, shigella, campylobacter. And the protozoan parasite Giardia has been a, a very big problem in daycare centers with outbreaks involving the children and the caretakers, and then children taking the parasites home and passing them on to their adult family members. Thank you, Dr. Lorber. I want to thank Dr. Bennett Lorber, who's been our guest today. We've been discussing societal impact on infectious disease. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals.